How do you respond when you're wrong? The passage we're dealing with this morning, Psalm 51, forces us to think about that question. How do you respond when you're wrong? And it's only when you answer that question that you can answer the one that follows. How should you respond when you're wrong? Really both are self-examining questions. And throughout our whole time this morning, I want you to have those in the back of your mind. How do you respond when you're wrong or when you sin? And how should you respond when you sin? While there are a plethora of examples of right and wrong responses to sin throughout the Bible. And the one that I'm going to point out is probably not one that would first come to your mind. It's a story of a father and a son. Now, both the father and this son in the story were both kings in the same royal line, kings of Judah. If you know anything about a father and a son, they're supposed to resemble one another from everything from their appearance uh, to their behavior. I can even see, maybe you, people tell you, you look like you're one of your parents when you were their age. People tell that to me all the time. And I can especially hear that when both me and my dad are singing. We sound exactly the same, I think. Um, but this father and son of this story pretty much bear no resemblance to each other. In fact, during their respective kingships, they're almost the polar opposites of each other. You see, the previous 11 kings before the father of this story, uh, were, none of them were all that great. At best, they were half-heartedly devoted to the Lord, and at worst, they were full-tilt pagans. But under this father's kingship, massive uh, reforms were enacted. And so what we have was restoration of the worship of the one true God. I mean, it was an overhaul. So here was, this father was no, by no means half-hearted. Even when a neighboring kingdom would come under threat and blaspheme God, the father of this story fully cast himself on the Lord. And God delivered him and his people from that neighboring kingdom. Now the son of this story is the polar opposite. As much as the father stood out for his goodness and devotion to God, his son stood out for his badness and his hatred of God. Now, there were some bad kings before the son of this story. But the son of this story pretty much takes the cake. No king before him was as bad, and no king before him was as bad for as long as this guy. The son reversed all the reforms that his father enacted. He established practices of worship for pretty much anything and everything besides the one true God. Going so far as to fill God's temple with idols. Going so far as to even sacrifice his own son to false gods. So if you're waiting for some kind of twist in the story, here it comes. So the question at the beginning, you remember, how should we respond when we sin or when we're wrong? And we think with the example of the father and the son that we would respond like the father. Like he's the good example of this story. But that's not the case. 
You see, toward the ends of both of their lives, both this father and the son were shown their sin. The father was wildly successful and eventually became prideful over his success. And the Lord sends a prophet to confront him about it. And the father of this story responds to his sin, not with any kind of repentance, contrition, sorrow, or any of that. He's still self-centered. The only thing he cares about is that the consequences for his sin won't come during his lifetime. This is supposed to be a good guy. What about this son, on the other hand? The wickedest king yet in Judah. Well, eventually the Lord allows another neighboring kingdom to come and take this son captive. And he comes to the end of his rope. And it's said of him that when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Plenty of lessons to draw from the father of this story, who's Hezekiah, and the son, who's Manasseh. You can read more about it in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We can see the nature of pride. We can see the nature of God's mercy. We can even see how we probably should view so-called biblical heroes. They're not heroes in every sense. There's only one true hero of the Bible. But the lesson that comes at the end of their lives is it matters how we respond after we sin. For as good of a life that Hezekiah led, he forgot that at the end. For as bad of a life that Manasseh led, he realized that at the end. The Bible's full of examples like Hezekiah and Manasseh of right and wrong responses to sin. In the passage in front of us today, Psalm 51, King David gives a near exhaustive guide to how to respond to sin rightly. So if we can summarize David's perspective in Psalm 51 in one big idea or main point, it's this. Responding to sin rightly means you're humble enough to admit it. Bold enough to take it to God and confident in the Lord enough to repent of it. So if you're writing that down, I'll say it one more time. Responding to sin rightly means you're humble enough to admit it, bold enough to take it to God, and confident in the Lord enough to repent of it. You see how those are three different stages that kind of progress. You know, you admit it, you take it to the Lord, you repent of it. You can see those stages throughout Psalm 51. And keep that in mind as we read. If you haven't, you can look in your bulletin or you can turn in the Bible to Psalm 51. I'm going to find it myself here real quick. If you've got a page number for me, shout it out. Oh, I found it. Page 474, if you want to look at the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, to understand the response to sin that David describes here, it's helpful to know the sin to which he is responding. So like a lot of Psalms, Psalm 51 comes with a backstory. And you can see that in the title of this Psalm. You see uh, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now you may know exactly what that title is talking about, or you may have no idea what that title is talking about. Either way, it is okay, because I'm going to tell you a little about it right now. Remember, we looked at Psalm 23 last week, and we talked about how David, when he was young, was a shepherd. And so God being his shepherd was especially significant for him. And the highlights of David's life after he was a shepherd kind of go something like this. You know, God sent the prophet Samuel to David when he was young, and Samuel, uh, God promised David that he would one day become king of Israel. Just out of nowhere promise. That'd be pretty cool. But it didn't happen right away. There was kind of a gap period in David's life after he received that promise and before he became king. In that gap period, Saul reigned as king while David eventually uh, worked his way through the ranks of Israel's army. There you get the story of David and Goliath. Well, long story short, Much of this waiting period, this gap time, was really hard for David. But long story short, eventually, King Saul died. David became king, though that transition was much more complicated than I just made it sound. And David's kingship started off really, really well. I mean, his first four years, we're telling, were fantastic. It would have got him elected another four years. 
You see, David was ruling humbly. He was ruling as God intended his kings to rule under his ultimate authority. And so God is blessing his people through his king, David. So if David's life is like a roller coaster, it keeps going up and up and up and up and up and up, just click, 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 click. And then comes 2 Samuel 11, where it's kind of the peak of the roller coaster, and you get those moments when you're like starting to go down. In 2 Samuel 11, everything starts to go downhill for David. That's when the events described by the title of this psalm take place. So David just came off a military victory. Israel's army still had another battle. But this time, David stayed home. Signs of trouble right away. So musing around his house, he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on her roof. Seems strange in our day, but it's something that people did back then. So he sees her. Her name's Bathsheba. Finds out she is Uriah's wife, one of the commanders in his army. He takes her. He sleeps with her, he, uh, she, she gets pregnant, he attempts to cover his tracks, and he has her husband killed. Just this unraveling, this downhill spiral. So to fill out the backstory of this psalm, all that's really necessary to know right now is that David was so deep in his sin, so engrossed in it, that he didn't stop to think that what he was doing was wrong. That kind of thinking lasted until the Lord sent Nathan to confront David. And if you read 2 Samuel 12, as we did earlier, Nathan confronts David masterfully. He does it with such winsomeness. And God uses that to just wake David up to what he has done. And we see David's response just in that one little phrase in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. So here, it's as if Psalm 51 are all the thoughts that go behind that one simple statement, I have sinned against the Lord. So like I said already, I think we can see a natural progression for the proper response to sin. You admit it, you take it to the Lord, you go forward in repentance, keep that big picture in mind, but as we read Psalm 51, there are just a lot of little components that go into responding to sin. It's just chock full of it. I was reading Psalm 51 this week, and just it is a bottomless well. And so today we may get a, just a sip of that well. It may not seem like a sip, but it's just a sip of that well. So if Psalm 51 is David's right response to sin... And given how much that response is, the sermon's going to be a little bit different. I think we can see at least 12 components of a right response to sin. I think we can see at least 12 components of a right response to sin. If you read Psalm 51, you could probably notice even more. In fact, I would invite you to do that. Read Psalm 51, see the other ways that God calls us to respond to our sin. But I think we could see at least 12 of them. And the order that they'll come in will pretty much follow that progression of admitting it, taking it to the Lord, and going forward in repentance. So let's dive in. First way, first little component. Ready? 
A right response to sin often takes the help of others. A right response to sin often takes the help of others. We might be tempted to skip over this one because it comes from the little title of the psalm, When Nathan Went to David. But think about it, friends. When did David first recognize his sin? It wasn't until Nathan talked to him. So the Lord has many ways to convict us of our sins, to show it to us. He even calls his spirit the one who convicts of sin and righteousness. But one of the ways God shows us our sin is through other people. So by nature, sin is blinding. And so this component of responding to sin, that it often takes the help of others, means a couple of things for us. It means we need to learn how to be David, and it means also we need to learn, when necessary, how to be Nathan. So we need to learn how to be David. We must recognize that we are liable to be blinded by sin and need to have others to help us fight sin and pursue the Lord. Just sidebar real quick, that's what we communicate, that's what you communicate when you commit yourself as a member of a church. You're communicating that I am liable to be blinded by my sin, and I need the help of other people to walk before the Lord. I need their help, and you know what? I'm committing to help them as well. Sidebar. So, for us, are, are you a David-like figure here? Even avoiding the mistakes of David. Being proactive in this. Have you given permission to fellow Christians, even here, to say hard things to you? Are you able to receive criticism humbly? to receive it without immediately giving a defense, to receive it without dismissing it, to receive it by seeing maybe if like 99% of it's false, maybe that 1% of it is true. Friends, it's possible to be around Christians all the time and not have those kinds of sin-fighting relationships. It's possible. So it takes spending time. It takes getting to know others. So this component means we recognize that we need Nathan-like figures in our lives at times. But it also means something else. It means that sometimes we need to be Nathan-like figures to each other. Just as we give permission for others to speak hard truths in our lives, so do we commit to care for those around us when necessary to speak hard truths to them. So to any non-Christian friend who might be here, uh, if you've ever had a Christian confront you about what you believe, about how you live, first of all, let me apologize if that was done rudely. That shouldn't be done that way. But it should be done. Any confrontation should ultimately be done, not with a sense of self-righteousness that we are without sin, but with a sense of concern for somebody else. A heart that's humble. So when and how to do what Nathan did takes wisdom. It takes also boldness and faith. David was the most powerful guy in this kingdom, and Nathan had to go tell him he messed up. David could have just snapped. David just killed a guy. 
And here's Nathan going to tell David, you did something wrong. So we would want to avoid this Nathan-like task. But in order to do it, that means we must need strength from the Lord. Knowing that the Lord can perform the kind of transformation that he took place in David's heart. Going from one who would, by any means necessary, covered his sin to one who just cried out to the Lord, I have sinned. God can do this, but often it starts when a loving friend comes alongside and helps them. Not all the components will be that long, I promise. Component number two, a right response to sin involves knowing what you deserve. A right response to sin involves knowing what you deserve. First two words, verse one, display this component. Have mercy. Have mercy. By crying out for mercy, David communicates more than that he has no claim to anything good from the Lord. He communicates that he actually deserves punishment from the Lord. So if you cry out to God for mercy, thinking that you deserve mercy, there's something disconnected there. So you can't deserve mercy. If you're crying out for the Lord for something that you deserve, you're crying out for justice. That's not what David's saying. David doesn't say, have justice on me, O God. That would be bad news for David. David says, have mercy on me. I know what I actually deserve. I ask you to have mercy on me. So the humility to ask for mercy is a vital component to responding rightly to sin. And if you're here and there's some disconnect in your mind of, I don't feel like I need mercy. I don't feel like the Lord should punish me. The psalm will help us show how we come to see what sin deserves. So just bear with me for a second. Component number three. A right response to sin appeals to who God is. A right response to sin appeals to who God is. How is David able to ask God for mercy? How does he know that he can ask it? Explain it with the text. The very next line, verse 1. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. The only way that David is able to ask God for mercy is because he knows that God is merciful. It's as if David is saying, God, act like yourself. Even the word for steadfast love shows that David knows God's good character. Steadfast love is a covenant word. signifies belonging. So here's a paradox for David. David's crying out to God. God, I deserve your punishment. Have mercy on me, yet you have steadfast love. Have mercy on me, yet I know I still belong. It's like the prodigal son from Jesus' parable who comes back to his father after he sinned and says, Father, I have sinned against you. He's still able to call him Father, yet he knows he needs mercy. So David knows that God is merciful. But how does he know that he needs God to be merciful? It's important for those who may have that disconnect. Don't feel like you need mercy. 
David must know that he needs God to be merciful because he also knows that God is holy and just. This is who God reveals himself to be, as we've read earlier. He revealed himself uh, as this way in Exodus 34. And so where, think about this, where would David learn that God is both merciful and holy? Where else would he learn that besides the Bible? So you see then, doesn't that show the practical side of knowing God this way? Of knowing God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. Doesn't it show the practical side of it? So friend, you ask yourself, does how you approach God, does your knowledge of the Bible determine that? Or do you just make it up as you go and that determines it? What informs how you approach God? Is it as God has revealed himself or is it God is of your own understanding? God is holy, which is bad news for people who have sinned against him. But it's not as if God, God's holiness is an unfortunate side of him. If God made exceptions, if God bent rules, if God compromised goodness, that he wouldn't be God. But in the face of God's holiness... The only hope for the sinner against them is God's mercy. So we are sinful, that is true, but take heart. The only thing that outnumbers our sins are God's mercies. Number four, a right response to sin acknowledges the damages that sin causes yourself. A right response to sin acknowledges the damages that sin causes yourself. David doesn't even get into all the ways he's caused pain for other people. Here he recognizes the damage he's caused himself. Verse 2, he says that on his own, without God's mercy, it's as if he has a record that is full of accusations against him. He goes on mixing metaphors a little bit. He says that as if he is a garment that's foul and polluted. David's sinful. He's unclean. And you see that word thoroughly in verse 2? I think there we get a sense of the extent of the damage that David sees in himself. Sin has affected everything in him. And he tells God, God, get all of it. I don't want any left. He's holding nothing back for himself. He's not saying, God, I got this little stain on my shirt. Get rid of that stain. I, got, I can wash the rest of my shirt. He says, God, wash me thoroughly. So part of recognizing the extent of the damage of our sin to us, I think one way to do that is seeing all the different layers of our sin. We can even do that with David in his situation. Even with a sin that is blatantly obvious, there are a bunch of layers that even make it worse. So in David's situation, he broke pretty much all of the Ten Commandments. Committed adultery, committed murder, coveted his neighbor's wife. More than that, through David's actions, he was acting the exact opposite of how God intended his kings to act. You read in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel warns about the kinds of kings that Israel would have. He says they would take everything from their people. 
including take their wives. So here's David doing exactly that, taking their wives. And once more, you look at the description of David's sin, just another layer of it. It says that David took Bathsheba after he learned that she was Uriah's wife. Like that was the trigger for him. Then he went and took her. It's as if David was thinking, oh, here's this beautiful woman. Oh, she's somebody else's wife. Nobody in my kingdom gets to have what I want. Uriah needs to learn his place. I'm going to take what I want. See something that's obviously sinful. All the layers of it. The damage piles up. So friend, how is your record looking? How are your garments? Sin is never as simple. It's never as innocent. It's never as harmless as it looks. Even when it looks bad like David's. So you'll begin to see your need for mercy when you see the extent of sin's damage in you. Number five. A right response to sin has confidence in what God is able to do. A right response to sin has confidence in what God is able to do. David recognizes the extent of the damages of sin in him. It's as if every part of him is stained. And knowing that, what does David do about it? Does he say, God, I'm turning over a new leaf. No more bad David. I'm going to go back to the old David. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to scrub out each one of these stains myself. I promise, God. I promise one day my good will outweigh this bad. No. Does David see the extent of the damages of his sin? And even take it to another person, like Nathan. He says, Nathan, you've just showed me this. Get rid of this for me. What does David do? when he sees the extent of the damage of his sin, who does he take it to? He takes it directly to God. Doesn't take it to himself. Doesn't take it to another person. He sees them and goes directly to God. Unless God is the one who blots out his transgressions, washes him from his iniquity, cleanses him from his sin, David will die. And David says to the Lord, I know I can't do this. But God, you can. Friend, you will see your need for God's mercy when you realize you cannot cleanse yourself from your sin. That no amount of good cannot weigh the bad. So friend, do you believe God can do this for you? Maybe you're tracking with us up to this point. You could see the layers of your sin, the extent of the damage which makes you see your need for mercy in light of God's purity and holiness. But then maybe you think, well, Steve, you just don't understand how bad my past is. Like David looks like a Boy Scout compared to me. Well, if that's your thought, you are the exact kind of candidate for God's cleansing, for God's forgiving mercy. Because God loves to give mercy to those who know without a shadow of a doubt they don't deserve it. Read the Gospels. Read of how Jesus healed and gave mercy to those who were completely unlikely. 
People like Samaritans, people like Gentiles, people like prostitutes, people like outcasts, people like sinners and tax collectors. Your record of sin might be like David's, really, really long. And not to pile it on, your record's probably worse than you realize. But Christ is able to cancel your record of debt. So do you have a bad record? Take it to Jesus. Colossians 2.14 uses the same picture of a record. It says God made us alive and forgave us of our sins. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you believe that God can do this for you? Cancel out your record of debt, of sin. But another question, do you believe that God must do this for you? So maybe at the everyday level, you try to take care of your sin yourself instead of taking it to the Lord. Maybe that's because you don't understand the danger of sin. Maybe that's because you overestimate your ability to handle it. Or maybe that's because you fear God will condemn you unless you clean yourself up before you go to him. Friend, only God can forgive and cleanse and get rid of our sin. And so in bringing our sin to him, we have no need to fear. For Jesus is the payment for our sin and our advocate before the Father. The right response to sin, having confidence in what God can do. Number six, a right response to sin is admitting our sin. A right response to sin is admitting our sin. Pretty much been assuming this the whole time. But let's make it clear now. We won't see our need for mercy. Neither will we take our sin to the Lord if we don't admit our sin in the first place. David plainly does this in verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions. So maybe that word sin has a bad connotation in your mind. It's just like, that's, that's just something that religious people say. I don't really get the whole sin thing. But each one of us has a sense of right and wrong. And without God, there's really no reason for right and wrong. Without God, there's no reason for us not to act however we want. But we know that's not the case. We know that right and wrong is our real things. And if we are really honest with ourselves too, we know that we have participated in the wrong. And friends, that is sin. So part of admitting our sin is owning it. Is owning it, just like David does here. You see all the uses of my in verses 2 and 3? It says my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions. He's not dodging it. He's not saying, oh, no, 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 Lord, look at... Look at my friend over here. Look at, look at how bad that guy is. It's like getting pulled over and saying, Officer, you see all these other people speeding around me? That guy was going way faster. <laughs> it doesn't work with the officer. It doesn't work with the Lord. The first thing you have to deal with is your own sin. And even right now, it can be ironic because you can be thinking, Oh, man, somebody I know really needs to hear that. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You need to hear that first. Admitting our sin is the right response. Number seven, 
A right response to sin is contrition and sorrow. A right response to sin is contrition and sorrow. Second part of verse 3, David says his sin is ever before him. Verse 4, he calls his actions evil. So it's possible to do the thing we just talked about, admit our sin, and still not respond rightly to it. It's possible to know that you've taken part in the wrong and not view your sin rightly. It's possible even to regret an action, feeling sorry for yourself, and not be remorseful over it. Think of the difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter, both sinning against the Lord. Rather than facing his guilt, Judas Judas hanged himself. Peter, on the other hand, wept bitterly and turned again to the Lord. We must be sorrowful, not just that we've messed up, but that we've sinned against the Lord. And that kind of sorrow, it doesn't come and go. It's not transient. It's what David says here. That kind of sorrow is ever before me. So he went from thinking, what are all the ways I can cover my tracks? To thinking, all the time, how could I have done this against God? Now, this isn't to say that we should always feel mopey and guilty. But it is to say that sometimes we treat our sin lightly. So, friend, if you can do the last component, if you can admit your sin, if you can own it, well, then how do you feel about it? Are you sorrowful over it? If the answer is no, why not? Seriously, that's not a rhetorical question. Why not? Why, what are the reasons you give yourself to justify your sin, to, to convince yourself that it's not as big of a deal as it really is? So one of the ways that we respond with sorrow, that we can actually sober ourselves in this, is seeing again the cross. If we would take sin lightly, look to the cross again. It reminds me of the hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Old one. But this verse is so powerful. It says, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may properly estimate. See the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. It's the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man, son of God. So sorrow over sin begins by remembering that it is sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Number eight, a right response to sin is knowing the truth about sin. A right response to sin is knowing the truth about sin. Very similar to the last one. David sins ever before him because he knows what sin really is. The truth about sin, he says, is that it is ultimately against God. Now, you may be thinking, well, hold on a second. Like, David really did wrong things to other people in this story. Well, David isn't naive. He, he knows that. Rather, what he, he's saying is that the core of his rebellion is against God. That's the ultimate motive of his heart. So as for us, would we think of sin as harmless? 
Will we think of sin, some sin as just being a private act, as being okay if it doesn't hurt anybody else? Know that the Bible does not treat sin that way. That there is no private act. That there is no harmless sin. David knows that the, wor- the worst thing about his sin is that it was against the high king of heaven. That it was treasonous. So, sin being ultimately against God does not make it a lighter thing. It makes it a worse thing. Friend, our bodies are not our own. Our neighbors, when we sin against them, our neighbors are made in God's image. Any sin is ultimately against the Lord. David also knows that the truth about his sin is that it wasn't a freak accident. It was not a freak accident, but a part of his nature. He says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying, again, you may make it confused, that the act of conception was sinful itself. He's saying that he's been sinful since the beginning of his existence, even in the womb. One theologian illustrates it this way. He asks, what is the reason that a young fox, newly whelped, does not slay a lamb? Is it not because the fox lacks strength and has not come to maturity to execute its natural inclination, which is cruel? So are infants naturally inclined to sin. And therefore, so soon as they can think anything, speak anything, or do anything, it is evil, as daily experience teaches. Don't believe this. Hang out with a two-year-old. The craving has been in David always. The truth about sin is that David sinned because he is a sinner. It's who he is. And isn't it amazing then that David can say, this is just who I am. And he doesn't make that an excuse. He doesn't tell God, well, God, I'm only human. What do you expect from me? He can say this is a part of his nature and still take full responsibility for his sin. Friends, can you hold up both of those realities? That sin is a part of our nature and it's still a choice? Number nine, a right response to sin seeks restoration. Last few are quicker, I promise. With all the components so far, where are we at? we would be at a really low point. Like, pummeled into the ground low. But this is how the Lord works. That before we are brought up high, we must be made low. So after confessing his sin, after seeing his need for mercy, after taking it to God, after experiencing sorrow over his sin, even, what does David do next? Again, David appeals to nothing in himself. That would be foolish, especially in light of what he's just said in verse 5. Instead, David appeals to the Lord. It must be the Lord who would make David new after his sin. David tells the Lord he needs change, not just a polish. He needs a full rehaul. David needs more than to turn over a new leaf. He needs a new heart. He needs to be restored to God again. And just scan the verses of verses 7 to 12 and see all the things that David had lost, that sin had cost David. 
and what he needs to be restored to. Sin cost David his joy, his purity, his wholeness, his heart. It cost him God's favor. So this psalm as a whole is a guide to how we respond to our sin rightly. But it's also, in light of what sin costs us, it would also be a hint to us to avoid sin in the first place. One of the ways to do that is to remember everything that sin will cost you. No matter what it says, it is not worth it. Write it down, tattoo it on, the, on your eyelids. Sin is never worth it. Sin is never worth it. It will cost you everything, even if you can't see, see it right away. Think how that's the exact opposite of following Christ. Christ says, following me will cost you everything, but it is always worth it. It is always worth it. So here's David no longer craving sin. He craves God. He wants to be restored to him. And again, he realizes that restoration to God will only come after cleansing from God. You look at verse 7. He asked God to do this with hyssop, a shrub used to sprinkle blood on the altar, like we read earlier, Hebrews 9. What David says here is that he needs the blood of another to cleanse him from the blood that he's spilt himself. The only way that he would live is that if someone else died in his place. So what this practice of hyssop pointed to is what Christ did once and for all. He stands on behalf of all those who repent of their sins and believe in him and offers himself as a sacrifice. And by his blood, their sins are forgiven. By his blood, they are healed, made whiter than snow. Not just as white as snow, whiter than snow, it says. That's a kind of cleansing and purity that can only be accomplished by God. And it's after cleansing that David is restored. That David is sorrowful, but he asks in boldness, knowing that, he can, that God can cleanse him, to give him joy again. David's sins were ever before him, but he asks God to do what he can't with his sins, to hide his face from them. Remember that Jesus does not just bear our sins, he bears our shame for our sins. And David doesn't presume any of this. Look at verse 11. He doesn't say that he deserves God's presence of mercy, nor does he say that he even deserves God's Holy Spirit. But they will remain, not because David deserves them, but because God is gracious. So a right response to sin seeks restoration to God. So we said all the components to this point would bring us really low. So ask, just at the end of this component, what do you do when you are made very low? Do you just stay there? Or do you cry out to God to be restored to him and plead the blood of Jesus on your behalf? Number 10, a right response to sin seeks renewal. A right response to sin seeks renewal. See that David wants more than pardon from his sin. He wants purity from his sin. If his life is going to continue, he knows he's going to need more than a new behavior. If his life is going to go on, 
Just like Celine Dion, Titanic, my heart will go on. David's life, if it's going to go on, he's going to need something even deeper than new behavior. He's going to need a new heart. And that's exactly what he asked God to do for him. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. And that's nothing short of a miracle. That word creates the same word when God created everything at the beginning. It's creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. So friends, if we are going to have a clean heart, God can't use anything that's already there. It has to be creation out of nothing. So friends, if you have a miscon- uh, let me correct you if you have a misconception that many have about Christians and about Jesus. Jesus is more than our prop. He's more than our get-out-of-hell-free card. We actually believe that coming to Jesus makes an actual, tangible difference in our lives. So much so that those who are in Christ, the Bible can call new creations. Just like it says here, create in me. Jesus fulfills that. So let's remind ourselves again that part of being saved by Christ is being made into his image. So Christian, you who would call yourself Christian, which literally means little Christ, do you want, I mean really want, Jesus to make an actual difference in your life? I mean really want that. Not just to be a prop that you hold up sometimes, but to, make the, to be the center, to make an actual difference in your life and in your heart. Then pray what David prays. Pray that God would continue to change your heart. That you would no longer want sin, but want Him. And not just want God, but actually take joy in God. David doesn't want a heart that simply follows God out of duty. He wants a heart that follows God out of delight. So friends, a life of purity and holiness will not happen without a new heart. And a new heart will not happen without a miracle-working God. There's good news. Our God is a miracle-working God. Number 11, coming to the end. A right response to sin is concerned with worshiping God. A right response to sin is concerned with worshiping God. See this concern in verses 13 to 17? It's just the natural response of a sinner who God has forgiven, who God has cleansed, who God has restored, who God has made new. Just a natural response. The sinner who has received God's mercy worships God by pointing others to that same mercy they've received. Verse 13. William Cooper, the writer of the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, we sing it here sometimes. He said this, Since the Lord has put out his merciful hand to draw us out of the prison of sin, shall we refuse to put our hand to see if possibly we may draw up others with us? So perhaps, friends, the secret sauce to evangelism is remembering how much God has done for you is remembering how much God has forgiven you. Maybe that's the secret sauce we're not including. The actions of public worship fill out the rest of verses 14 to 17, whether it's singing, whether it's declaring, whether it's offering sacrifices and gifts, 
All of it's done with a genuine heart. One that knows its sinfulness. One that knows that it has no claim to God's mercy. So perhaps the secret sauce, again, to a genuine, loud, and joyous singing and just life before the Lord. Perhaps the secret sauce of that is remembering how much God has done for you and has forgiven you. Even the Lord said, even Jesus said, that those who have been forgiven much love much. That means the more we are aware of our sin, the more God's mercy will blow us away. Can't have a sermon on the Psalms without quoting Charles Spurgeon. Says this, A great sinner pardoned makes a great singer. Sin has a loud voice, and so should our thankfulness. We shall not sing our own praises if we be saved, but our theme will be the Lord our righteousness. In whose, mercy, in whose merits we stand righteously accepted. William Plummer also says this, After a Christian has mourned, he will rejoice. He who never sorrowed for sin will never rejoice for grace. We've made it, friends. Number 12. Thank you for bearing with me. A right response to sin wants this for all of God's people. A right response to sin wants this for all of God's people. So this psalm, you read it, and it's like an individual's experience. But you keep in mind the title. David wrote this for a group of people, for a whole congregation. So in closing, we are reminded that as God blesses individuals, it will in turn do good for all of God's people. So just imagine the picture that this sets forth for us here. Imagine an entire community that responds to their sin as Psalm 51 would guide us to. Imagine an entire community of people who do that. Whose sin is forgiven. Whose sin is cleansed. An entire community that has confidence in what God is able to do. An entire community with new hearts. An entire community who has desires to worship God genuinely. Friends, a community like that would be the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So, Old Oak Bible Church, what would our witness be if each of us sought God's help to live out Psalm 51 together? By now, if you're out of breath, that is okay you see that there is a lifetime of wisdom from Psalm 51. We'll close with the same questions we asked at the very beginning. How do you respond when you sin? Follow up, how should you respond when you sin? In all of our response, let us remember that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. God, help us do what you've laid forth for us in this psalm. To realize our sin, to not try to handle it on our own, but to confess it, to take it to you, and there find life and healing, and there find the strength to repent of it. Help each one of us do this, that we may be a witness to your great mercy in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.